Revelation chapter 20, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there. And this morning we're going to be reading from verse 11 through the end of chapter 20, verse 15. These final chapters that we're working our way through here at the close of the book of Revelation deal with subjects concerning life and death, the afterlife, subjects such as heaven and hell. We spent the last couple of weeks looking at what this chapter reveals about the millennial kingdom of Christ, the 1,000-year kingdom that Christ will establish after he returns to the earth. And so this morning, from verse 11 through verse 15, we come to what perhaps may very well be the most sobering paragraph in the entire Bible. And every once in a while, a preacher is faced with this task of dealing with a subject that he'd rather avoid. And this morning, I feel that I am faced with that task because there really is no way to avoid the subject of hell. And those who would attempt to do so would ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. C.S. Lewis once said of hell, he said, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay within my power. But it has the full support of Scripture as well as our Lord's own words. And hell's one of those subjects that we should never talk about with a yawn or a lack of concern Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that no man should ever preach on the subject without tears streaming down his face. Now, many throughout the centuries have tried to explain the subject away. They've tried to argue that it's not in keeping with the character of God to send a person to an eternal judgment. And so instead, they sort of come up with a view known as universalism which says that, well, in the end, everyone is going to be saved. Way back in the third century, there was a theologian and a thinker. His name was Origen, and he held to this understanding, but his beliefs were not scriptural. And so really, for the next 1,600 years of church history, hardly any major theologian argued that everyone will be saved. And all that began to change in the 1800s and the result of Enlightenment thinkers. And in the wake of the Enlightenment, this notion of hell began to be viewed as primitive. And even today, there are a number of self-professing Christian thinkers and writers who belong to more liberal mainline denominations who try to advocate this universalist idea. Uh, some years ago, you may remember, there was a popular pastor named Rob Bell who came out and rejected the orthodox teaching about hell and suggested that there really is no such place and it's all metaphor. And he since abandoned Christianity altogether. And so this question, what is hell? This is a question that spawned a lot of different questions and different answers over the years. For Origen, it was a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so that they could find their way back to God. Dante Alighieri in the 13th century, he was an Italian poet, 
you may remember his Inferno if you read that when you were in high school, but he depicted hell as a place under the earth's surface with nine levels of suffering. And according to his thoughts, it was a place where sinners were bitten by snakes and tormented by wild animals and trapped in rivers of sewage and that kind of thing. C.S. Lewis envisioned hell as being a dark, gloomy place where being fades away into non-entity. The band ACDC said that hell's a place where all their friends would be, and so they're proud to be on the highway to hell where there's no stop sign and no speed limit and nobody's going to slow them down. And so people have these different ideas, some of which are unscriptural, superstitious ideas. So it's important that we understand what the Bible really teaches about this subject of hell. And we're not interested in someone's opinion on the subject. We want to know what the Bible actually has to say. And so listen to the words of verse 15 in this passage that we're going to read in just a moment. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You're to take your pen or your pencil Right in the margin of your Bible, beside verse 15, these words, most sobering words in Scripture. I can't think of a more terrifying verse, a more thought-provoking verse than Revelation 20, verse 15. And even though these words ought to really shock men and women into reality, reminding them of what's at stake in eternity, many would view such words as nothing more than superstition. In a modern, sophisticated age, this notion of eternal judgment, this is something seen as being barbaric. It's offensive. Thought of as being an outdated relic from a superstitious era of human history. It's the proverbial boogeyman meant to scare us into some type of religious submission. And so people have put the doctrine of hell on a shelf And even many within the church have attempted to downplay it or ignore it, treat it as if it were an embarrassment to the faith, and yet none of that changes the fact that the Scripture says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And it's that judgment that's being described here in these verses. So let's read beginning with verse number 11 of Revelation chapter 20. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And here are these sobering words. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this morning, I want to speak from this subject, the destiny of the unsaved dead. 
Because that's what's being described here at this great white throne judgment, which is the subject of these verses. And in these final chapters of Revelation, again, we're considering these issues related to death, the afterlife, heaven and hell. And there are a lot of people who would say, well, it's really a waste of time to, to, to spend so much thought on these kind of matters. Is there life after death? What is heaven like? Is hell a literal place? And a lot of people try to force these kind of, of, of subjects and topics out of their minds and hearts because, let's just face it, this present life has more than enough troubles. <laughs> and often a person's reasoning sort of will fall along these lines. You know, thinking about the afterlife, that's not going to help you get through the issues of the day. It's not going to help you pay off your mortgage or help you with some family issue that you've got going on in your life. It won't help you deal with those everyday decisions that you're confronted with on a regular basis. And so some are under this assumption that thinking about the afterlife is impractical as it relates to life now. But you know, the Bible says that thinking about the afterlife thinking about heaven and hell and what comes next, this is the single most practical activity that a person can do because it affects everything that we do in this life. It adds weight uh, to everything that we're a part of in this life. Uh, Tim Keller said that the way we live now is completely controlled by what we believe about the future. It determines what we love, it determines our motivation in life, our goals in life, how we direct all of our energies in this life. And what we believe about the afterlife affects our worldview, and that drives our decision-making in life. And so our beliefs concerning heaven, our beliefs concerning hell, all that's connected with those beliefs, uh, this really forms the center from which we evaluate everything in life as it is now, or at least it ought to. Uh, back in the 1970s, John Lennon released a song that became a hit, and the title of the song was Imagine. And I know you're familiar with the lyrics of that song. I don't know if you've ever paid close attention to the lyrics, but they say something to the effect, imagine that there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, and someday I hope you'll join us and the world will be as one. So this really just sort of sums up his utopian ideal for the world. You know, imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine people living only for today, only for the here and now. You know, don't concern yourself with some fictitious afterlife, but focus on real-world issues here and now and today. And folks, if that's your worldview, here's the thing. That will greatly affect the way that you live your life. So why don't we just imagine for a moment that all that there is is this physical world as we know it. There is no heaven. 
above. There is no hell beneath. There is no invisible spiritual realm inhabited by angels or demons, and there is no God for that matter, no ultimate accountability, no future judgment to be concerned about. And so what that means is that instead of the actions of a loving creator, let's just suppose that the entire universe arose out of microscopic pieces of stardust colliding with each other eons upon eons ago through random, impersonal, unguided processes. And somehow, those same processes gave rise to life and brought forth human beings, eventually evolving us into the highly complex biological machines that we are today. And even though the universe around us is going to wind down, it's going to pass away with a bang. Before that happens, you and I are going to live for just a brief time. We'll die. We'll slip into some kind of quiet oblivion without ever leaving a trace. If we're fortunate, maybe our loved ones will come and place a flower on our grave for a generation or two, but eventually we're all going to be forgotten. Now, who wants to imagine an existence like that? But that's the practical implication that a secular naturalistic worldview has on the way that a person approaches life. There's no real sense in pursuing justice in the world if there is no afterlife and ultimate judgment and accountability to a creator. There's no objective standard for right and wrong. There's no such thing as evil for that matter. And yet our conscience tells us that this is not the case. So what we believe about the future greatly affects the way that we live our life now. Now we'll get into the text here in just a moment, but I think it's important that you could take all of the religions of the world and all of the philosophical systems of the world, and as far as what people believe about the afterlife, you can sort of condense it into roughly five or six categories of thought. All right, so, so think about this. View number one is that naturalistic worldview, the atheistic worldview, which says after death, there is nothing. There's just a cessation of existence. Death means the end of existence, period. Life is made up only of matter. Reality is made up only of matter. Death of the body means a permanent uh, end to one's existence. And so this is largely the view of those who would hold to atheism and a naturalistic worldview. There's no divine judgment that awaits because death is the end. And this idea of accountability to God, this is a non-issue for those who hold to an naturalistic worldview. All right, so that's the first view. A second view would be the continuation of the soul only. The body dies, the soul escapes, the prison of the body. This was the thought process of a lot of the ancient Greeks. The physical body is bad, what's good is the soul, and only the soul is immortal. And so a lot of your ancient Greek thought fell along these lines. A third view is the view of annihilation. Well, those who are good in life, they'll, they'll live on forever somewhere, but those who are wicked will be totally consumed, annihilated, snuffed out of existence. 
A fourth view is that of soul sleep. There are some who believe, well, um, what happens when, when a person dies, the soul goes to sleep and is merely waiting for future resurrection. And so the soul is sort of in some place of limbo, if you will, waiting for this future time when Christ is going to raise the dead. The souls of believers go to sleep after death rather than being ushered immediately into heaven. A fifth view is is the view known as reincarnation. It's a view held by a lot of Eastern religions. And basically it says after physical death, the soul of a person inhabits another entity. You think of Hinduism, reincarnation. It's this belief that all living things sort of experience a cycle of births and deaths and rebirths until finally that soul achieves some type of union with the highest possible reality. And so you've got this law of karma then that that is in operation in that Hindu system. Kind of what goes around comes around. You know, if you're good, then you die, you'll get to come back on a little bit of an elevated scale. If you're bad, well, tough luck, you'll probably come back as a worm or a bug or something like that. That's reincarnation. All right, so most of the world's, if not all of the world's religions or philosophical systems with with regard to life after death, they fall into these categories. The sixth final category is biblical Christianity. What is it that the Bible says about what happens after we die? Well, listen, the word of God says that the dead are still alive. Everyone who dies is still alive somewhere because death does not terminate human existence. Yes, the body experiences physical death, but a person is more than a body. You've been created with a soul. And so you, you, you see evidence of this all throughout the scriptures. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that man is going to his eternal home. The wages of sin is death. The reason for physical death is because of the curse of sin. Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins, it shall die. And yet the Bible teaches that there's a time in the future where there will be a future resurrection both for the righteous and the unrighteous. And there are two very different destinies for the righteous as well as the unrighteous. Because the Bible says that those who die in Christ will be raised to endless life, but those who die in their sin will be raised to endless contempt. And someone says, okay, well, that happens at the resurrection. What happens to the soul of a person who dies now? Well, listen, the scripture says that for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so whenever you come across passages of Scripture that refer to death as sleep, never do those passages refer to the soul, but to the body. Because when a believer dies, that that believer goes to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the same thing's true for the unbeliever. To be absent from the body is to be separated from the Lord in hell. And so we know that this is what the scripture teaches. Man's problem is that he's a sinner. He's under the curse of sin. 
There's none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 64 says, the very best of my righteousness is like a filthy garment. If I'm banking on my good deeds to get me into heaven, it's not gonna happen. Because even my very best deeds are still corrupted by sin. So here's what I have to have. In order for me to have eternal life, in order for me to have a home in heaven when I die, let me tell you something. I have to have the righteousness of someone who's perfect. I have to have the righteousness of Christ. And and here's the good news of the gospel. If you're a believer in Christ, you've believed that Christ died for your sins and that he rose again from the dead, the Bible says that you were justified freely as a gift of God's grace. You're justified by faith. You've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means when I stand before God one day, I'm not going to be standing on the basis of my own merit, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And if you're standing before the judge at the judgment seat, listen to me, and you're not dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only thing you have to fall back on at that point is your own righteousness. And the Bible says that our righteousness falls way short, comes up way short of the perfect righteousness of God. So we come to this passage here in Revelation chapter 20 and you see the dead who are standing before the throne. And notice the text says that the books are opened up and they're being judged on the basis of what they did and what they did not do. And the reason is, these are those who've died without faith in Jesus Christ. They're standing before the judge apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and all they have to fall back on is their own deeds at that point. And it's not sufficient. It's not enough to get them to heaven. It's not enough to grant them eternal life. And so that's why this is such a sobering passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20 says that at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, there will be a future resurrection of the unrighteous. And this is referred to as the second death. Now notice a few things from this passage. First of all, notice with me the scene that's being described. John says in verse 11 that he sees a great white throne and he sees the one who's seated seated upon the throne. Now that's similar to something he saw back in chapter four, verse two, where he says, I saw a throne which stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so here, John is taken in the spirit to a very real place which exists in a very real dimension and he describes a reality beyond our normal five senses. Tasting, touching, seeing, hearing, smelling. And that automatically rules out the naturalistic worldview which says all that you see is all that there is. No, John's permitted to see into a very real spiritual realm, a dimension that's present all of the time and from which all of the visible affairs of earth are governed. Do you know that from cover to cover, the Bible is plain in its teaching that nothing on earth happens outside of God's sovereign control? The universe is governed by God. There's not one speck of cosmic dust that exists outside of God's direction. So here's what's happening. John is being taken to headquarters where the seat of power is, the very throne of God. 
This is the throne of God, and this is what's occupying John's focus. He mentions it frequently in Revelation. Out of the 22 chapters of the book, there are only five chapters where that word throne does not show up. And so the point being made is that the government of God, this towers over human events. And insight into history, this is gained when we view things from the vantage point of God's heavenly throne. That's why we as believers, we don't have to throw our hands up in despair. We don't have to live our lives with worry. We don't have to, uh, you know, constantly be wringing our hands over the affairs of men that are happening all across the globe. You want to know why? Because we believe that there's one who's seated upon the throne. And if we have a glimpse of the heavenly throne room and the one who's seated upon the throne, that will provide you with a sense of calm confidence even when your world literally seems to be falling apart. Now this scene though here in Revelation chapter 20 is unlike the scene that John sees back in chapter four. The scene described here is that of a court or a tribunal. This is a place of final accountability, and John sees a great white throne. Approximately 50 times in Revelation, there's the mention of thrones. And this throne is different. This is the great throne, not so much because of its size or its immensity, but because of its significance. This is a throne of authority. This is God's eternal throne. This is the seat of his rule. And it's white. And that speaks of the character of this throne. That speaks of the purity of this throne. Uh, The fact that verdicts and decrees from this throne are pure and righteousness, thereby upholding the purity, the holiness, the righteousness of the one seated upon the throne. From this throne comes absolute truth, unlimited majesty, unchallenged sovereignty. This is the final judgment seat for the judge of all the earth to sit and make his judgments. Reminds us that our God is one who is in perfect control. He's large and he is in charge. And what makes this throne spectacular really is the one seated upon it. Verse 11 says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found. The idea is so awesome is the one seated upon the throne that creation itself comes unglued before him. Which, by the way, keep in mind, that's what's got to happen. Because verses 1 through 10 have described the 1,000-year kingdom of Christ upon the earth. After which after which comes the new heaven and the new earth. What's going to happen before the new heaven and the new earth is ushered in? Well, Peter writes about that in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he talks about the elements of this universe being melted by, with fervent heat. In fact, if you flip back to 2 Peter chapter 3, look at what he says about the day of the Lord. Uh, He says, verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now listen to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness 
but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He takes, our God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The fact that there is a hell and that there is an eternal judgment, that there is a destiny for the unsaved dead. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but, but he's patient, he's long-suffering, he's kind, he's willing that all should come to repentance. But verse 10 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In fact, heavenly bodies there translates a Greek word that means fundamental elements. The idea is that the basic elements of the universe are going to melt and be done away with before our God ushers in something brand new. Peter says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the very thing that Peter writes about in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle John is given a prophetic glimpse of here in Revelation chapter 20. Heaven and earth flee from before the one who's seated upon the throne. Chuck Swindoll says of this, it's as if all existence folds up into nothingness just as easily as God had called it into existence out of nothing. <laughs> no words can describe what this image portrays, the eternal, infinite transcendence of God and the temporal, finite contingency of the created universe. He says the contrast between creator and creature could not be more dramatic. We tend to think, well, the universe as it exists, it's just always going to exist, it's always been. And you hear people now, you know, from, from a variety of worldviews almost refer to the universe as if the universe were omnipotent. Well, if things just align just right for me and I got that job promotion, I guess the universe ought to be commended. The stars aligned for me. No, all of those stars are created. The universe is created. You and I are created, we are finite creatures who are accountable to the creator. And, and here's the truth of the Bible, we're all going to meet him. We're all going to stand before him. We're all going to witness him. We're going to be examined by him, weighed in the balance by the very one to whom we owe our existence. And that's why this is a sobering passage. So that's the scene then that the Apostle John is describing. Now notice, secondly, there's a session that's being assembled. Court is in session. Verse 12, John says, I saw the dead, great and small, all standing before the throne, and he says, books were opened. So notice a few things about this. The dead will be gathered those who are standing before this great white throne judgment. Again, these are unbelievers from every age, men and women whose names are not written in the book of life. Believers will not be present at this point because they will already 
have been evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, the scripture teaches that there are going to be two judgments. There's the judgment seat of Christ where every believer is going to stand before Christ. That happens before the kingdom, before the millennial reign of Christ, after the rapture of the church. And then there's this great white throne judgment that happens at the end of the thousand-year kingdom of Christ where the unsaved dead will also be resurrected and sentenced. So the dead will be gathered. Now, here's the thing. For a believer who stands before the judgment seat of Christ, you need to know this. It's not our sins that are being judged at the judgment seat of Christ. You want to know why? Because my sin's already been judged at the cross. My sin and the debt has already been dealt with by my Savior who died in my place. So the judgment seat of Christ, it's not where my sins are being judged, but it's where my works are being evaluated. My service, my Christian life, what I did with the resources that that my Savior entrusted me with, all of that's going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take heed how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here's the point. Paul's saying we're all building upon this foundation, this gospel foundation in our life. The foundation is Christ. What are you building with? He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here's what the point is. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our works are going to be evaluated. My service is going to be evaluated. The motive behind my Christian life is going to be evaluated. The motive behind the sermons that I prepared. The ultimate motive behind the offerings that I gave. The way that I responded in my relationships and all such as that, all of that's going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Another passage that deals with this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul says, we make it our aim to please our God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. So for believers, the Bible reveals that the judgment seat of Christ will be a time of honest evaluation. We're going to be judged fairly because it's the judgment seat of Christ. The thing is, you and I can't render fair judgments because oftentimes we just see what meets the eye and oftentimes we get it wrong. That's why we better not judge. But let me tell you something, Jesus is the perfect judge And the Bible says that the Father, he judges no one, but he gives all judgment to the Son. And when Jesus judges, he judges with perfect fairness. This is an honest evaluation of my life at the judgment seat. And then it's going to be an individual judgment. 
Paul says we as believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be individual. There'll be no stand-in for me. My mom, my dad, my brother, my Sunday school teacher, my pastor, there'll be no stand-in. We're all going to be personally, individually evaluated. And listen, it will be a thorough evaluation. The fact that we must appear before the judgment seat. That word appear translates a word that means to be revealed. The idea is we're going to be exposed. The motive behind our service is all going to be exposed. Now all of this applies to believers at the judgment seat of Christ. But folks, what's being described here in this Revelation 20 passage, this is the destiny of the unsaved dead. This is the great white throne judgment and all who stand before the great white throne judgment, again, They're not standing in the righteousness of Christ, but they're standing naked and exposed before the judge of the universe who weighs the heart in the balance, and they have nothing with which to commend themselves to the creator at this point. Now, I've got to stop here because my time is gone. We'll come back to this. But I don't know about you, but don't you just sense the weight of this passage? This reminder of judgment. You know that the, the, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us in three areas. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He works to convict us in areas of sin. That's what's not right. But he also works to convict us in areas of righteousness. That's what is right but he works to convict men as far as this truth of judgment is concerned. And what is that? That's accountability. Accountability. Let's stand for prayer this morning. I'll tell you something, this really impacts the way that we live our life, doesn't it? When you're reminded of your divine accountability before God. And the issue with sin Oftentimes, we don't want to be accountable to anybody. Perhaps we're living in a time where no one wants to be accountable. We want to do our own thing. But the fact is, this passage of Scripture reminds us in a very sobering, realistic way that there is one who's seated upon the throne, and you ain't him. But make no mistake about it, we're all going to meet him. But the good news is, you don't have to meet him as far as judgment for sin is concerned because you can experience grace and forgiveness and peace with God through turning from your sin and placing your faith and trust in Christ and being dressed in Christ's righteousness. And I love the line from the hymn that we so frequently sing. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. And Lord, these are weighty matters. These matters of life and death, and the subject of heaven and hell and judgment. And Lord, these are issues that we don't treat with a flippant attitude. Nor do we approach in a superstitious manner. But Lord, we want want to be informed by the scriptures. 
having minds illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And God, we wanna live sober lives, lives of accountability, faithful responsibility, because as believers, we know that there's coming a time when we're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Lord, for those who die without Christ, they're going to stand one day before the great white throne. And God, I don't want that for any person. So Lord, may the truth of this accountability motivate us to share the good news. Lord, to be about the mission of taking the gospel and spreading it among our neighbors and the nations of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.